And turn to the book of First John, First uh, John chapter five this morning. Um, and at the outset here, um, let me let me bring us up to speed, kind of a little bit with where we've been in the book of John. And so we've been going through the book of John together, the book of First John, excuse me. Um, and the and the theme or, or, or the things that we've been stopping to look at uh, is that you may know. Um, there's a few common phrases throughout the book of 1 John that we have seen, and one of them is that John wrote so that they would know something. Um, and remember that this church that he wrote to was um, struggling great, um, uh, greatly. Uh, they had experienced um, the disease of false teaching. They've disp- they experienced the disease of, of people rising up from within them, uh, as is often the case, that false teaching doesn't usually come from outside in when it has its greatest effect, but it rises up from within. Um, and this church is experiencing that. And so, so the Apostle John, who is older in life here, uh, writes to this church uh, so that they may know. And, and some of the things that, um, if you remember, uh, if we go back just through chapter 1 and 2, 3, and 4 here, um, and, and just even if we just look at the headings, um, uh, in, in our Bibles of these different sections of Scripture, but John wanted them to know the word of life, walking in life. He wanted them to know that Christ was their advocate, right? He wanted them to know the commandment to love one another and not to love the world. And just all of these things is where we've been, and it's all been predicated upon this idea that this false teaching that rose up within the church was that Christ uh, is not necessary for salvation, uh, basically is what it taught, is, is that you did not need the forgiveness of your sins through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, or, or the word John uses in First John is the word propitiation, right? Um, but that you actually just had to dig down deep inside of you and that the true light, the light of truth, uh, actually shines inside of every person. And, and you just have to do the work of uncovering it and self-realization and self-reliance. And there were a lot of people that left their church. And there were a lot of people that, that began to, to cling to this, this uh, salvation by self, if you will, uh, rather than believing in salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And so John is writing to reassure them in their beliefs. And this morning's uh, message uh, is entitled, How You Ought to Love God, right? So right there, we know that today is going to be a big boy, big girl Sunday, uh, because there is a right way that you are to love God. Um, it is not left to us to decide how it is that God should be loved or God has said for us to love Him. Um, it's funny, I, I saw a, a picture this week by um, somebody, I don't, I don't know if this guy actually said it, but they put it to his face, was um, C.K. Lewis, and, and he had said that just because, or you don't have the right uh, to tell somebody that what you said didn't hurt them. Right? And that's kind of that's the, the, the mentality that we need to understand this morning is that we don't have the right to tell God how we are to love Him. So, like God uh, is the one who has designed it, and God is the one who has actually in His Son, which is one of the things that, that John lays out, God has Himself displayed how love works and what love is. And so as John is ending his letter... We're wrapping up here. We're in the last chapter. Three more messages in this series. Um, he's ending this letter to his beloved brothers and sisters. He provides no new info. So as we're going through these five verses this morning, you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I've heard that. Yeah, you have. 
Uh, and, and John, First John is actually notoriously the hardest book in all of Scripture to outline, to make sense of, uh, because he just kind of revisits the same themes over and over again, as we've seen. And so what he's doing this morning is he's bringing together three of his main themes together so that we would see what a life that has been transformed by the gospel looks like. So that we would see a life that believes the truth that Jesus was offered by God as the propitiation for our sins. Remember, the word propitiation means that it was, there was a sacrifice offered that absorbed or satisfied the wrath of God. It doesn't declare that God's wrath is wrong or unrighteous, but it satisfies the righteous wrath. And so this morning, we're going to see what a life looks like or, or how we ought to love God. Let me share this story with you that I found this week. It says, During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. The execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, the bell did not sound. The soldier's fiance had climbed into the belfry and clung to the great clapper of the bell to prevent it from striking. When she was summoned by Cromwell to account for her actions, she wept as she showed him her bruised and her bleeding hands. Cromwell's heart was touched, and he said, Your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. And so the reality is, and sometimes this is a tough reality for us as Christians to hear, and we don't want to hear, but the truth is that there is a way that we are to love God. There is a right way to live. There's a right way to live that declares that I I believe that God loved me first, as John proclaims, and that God loved me first, and he displayed that love for me first by sending his son. And so there is a right way that we shall live, just like that fiancé's, that lady's actions did not make her love her fiancé, but she acted that way because of her love for him. And the same is true for us. And so let's read 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5 together. We'll pray, and then we'll walk through these. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. God, this morning uh, we are before you, uh, Lord, and in many ways, God, we are empty. God, whether it be because of the strains of relationships, the strains of finances, the strains of holidays, career, God, the strains of failure, the strains of victory, God, the strains of um, false hopes or failed hopes. And we ask this morning, God, that through your word that you would fill us. We ask, God, that you would remind us once again, God, remind us anew the love that you have for us. Give us the strength, God. Give us the faith, God, to believe. 
Give us the strength, God, to live a life in accordance with what we believe. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. Tim Keller said that, uh, or he wrote, actually, that Jesus says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly, that all other attachments in your life would look weak by comparison. So let's start this morning, if you will, and, and let's, just, let's just ponder for a moment on this, this quote by Tim Keller. Let me read it one more time. He said that Jesus says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly, that all other attachments in your life look weak by comparison. So let's do a little self-evaluation together. As you look at your heart, as you look at your life, as you look at the way you spend your time and your money and your efforts and your affections, what is it in your life that looks strong? And by comparison, what is it in your life that looks weak? Where do your greatest allegiances lie? Your, your, your deepest affections, where do they lie? Where do they lie? Where do they align? Does everything in life even the good things in life, even God's good blessings that He has given us in our life, does our love and our care for those things look, look weak in comparison to our love for Christ? Now, chances are we're all sitting here this morning and myself standing, uh, not being able to answer that question as well as we ought. And that is the good news of the gospel. That in light of our failing to love God the way that we ought to, He still loves us. And in light of our failing to be as faithful to God in His ways as we ought to, He is faithful to us. And that is what Tim Keller is talking about. This following that Tim Keller speaks of is loving God. To follow God is to love God. To love God is to follow God. And that's what John is getting at this morning. He wants us to be reminded. Listen, <clears throat> there is, remember how in Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, Solomon wrote that there is nothing new under the sun. And what he's getting at there, after he talks about all of the vanities of his life and the, the indulgences that he has, he has enjoyed and, and at, at the end of his life, it's now regrets. But what he's talking about is there's no new way under the sun to sin. There's no new way under the sun to rebel against God. There's no new way to follow God under the sun. It's all the same. It's been the same. And we are here this morning often with, uh, with false ideas of what it looks like to love God. Some of us believe in, 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 in the way that our life is lived declares that we believe that working really hard is the way that we love God. Working really hard so that God would love us or God would bless us is how we are to love God. We've seen it in our society and in our lifetimes and in history that some people believe that the right way to love God is by exacting justice in God's name. And then we've also seen examples of how um, people believe that the way that they ought to love God is by excluding the heathens of the world in the name of Christ. 
And so what we have to be careful of is what is it that is forming our, 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 our um, what is it that is forming the way that we ought to love God? Are we loving God the way that we want to be loved? A lot of times that's a struggle in relationships, especially between spouses, is that you're loving that person the way that you want them to love you. And, and, and it can sometimes be somewhat innocent in that you know that you really receive love and you feel loved when somebody does this for you. So in an effort to make that person feel loved, you're going to do what you would like to be done unto you. But that's not really loving them. As we've seen in the last many weeks of this series, that, that loving people, and we'll even, actually even we'll see it again this morning, that loving people um, is having their best at heart. They're best in mind. And that is how God has loved us. And so the way that we ought to love God should be in line with the way that God has loved us. And the one thing that I have tried very hard in this series to do for you guys is as we, as we lay out the theme or the title of the, of the sermon is, is to back the sermon up just with the text for the day. Like, it's really easy for us to search all of Scripture and see how we ought to love God, right? And all of those things are true. Just because they're not specifically mentioned here in these five verses doesn't mean that they're not true and they're not good, faithful ways to love God. But what I have tried to do is is intentionally um, prove to you the the point of the text from the text. And I have done that to help, hopefully, for you guys to see that in your own devotionals and in your own study time, when, when a question arises in your heart or your mind as you're reading, before you go anywhere else to find the answer, go to the text. Because most often... The text will be found in the answer, uh, the answer will be found in the text. And so in these five verses, John gives us three ways that we ought to love God. Very simple. Some of it, again, will be, um, will be um, things that we have already heard in this series. But remember, our goal this morning is to see how we ought to love God in a way that is in accordance with the way that he has loved us. And so the first thing that, that John says here, or the right way, or the first way that we ought to love God is first with a right belief. We cannot love God as we ought if we do not rightly believe. It is an abomination to God to believe falsely about Him. It is an insult to God to say that if And now we won't say this, but the way that we think and the way that we believe and the way that we live often does declare this very thing, that if I were God, then there's no way this would be true. If I were God, there's no way this would happen. If I were God, there's no way that this would have come to pass. And we think of those things in terms of natural disasters, right? Normal human questions. We think of those things when when loved ones pass away. But we also think of those things when we come across hard scripture and we wrestle with it. We don't want to believe it because it's hard. But the way of salvation, doing good, giving, marriage, parenting, our outlook on on work, why we work, all must be accurate to the way God has designed each one of those things, the way that God has provided each one of those things, if we are to love God. Verse 1, he says it in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And in verse 5, he ends this small section of Scripture by saying very similarly, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so if we together often declare we love God, we end a prayer often by saying what? I love God. I love you. The songs that we sing, the songs that the, the, the band leads us in and, and that we repeat, or if it's on the radio or, or praying throughout the week, we say, or we think we say, and when we need to say, we say, I love you, God. But do we really believe in accordance with that? To love God is to have a right belief about God. To love God the way that we ought is to have a right belief about salvation. Salvation is by grace. It is a gift. It is not the works of men. Belief is one of the most fundamental things that we do as humans. One of the saddest things for me as I just encounter people throughout my day, my daily routines, um, is, is either the lack of belief, but most often it's just the outright wrong belief of God. I've told you for a while now, I'm thinking of doing a sermon series called Bumper Sticker Theology, where we just take all the stupid wrong things that Christians say. They mean well, I guess, but they just don't know. Uh, And it does not portray a right belief in God. I can't tell you before how many football games I've heard, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Right? Uh, And again, that is why when we've gone through this series, we want to get the answers from the text because we cannot understand the text if we don't understand the context of what is being talked about. That text was not written to the very first ever football team, right, before their football game against the Philistines or the Romans or the whatever it was, right? It's like, that has nothing to do with it. And I think one of the saddest things that I encounter um, specifically one of the biggest misbeliefs is how God's sovereignty and his goodness are two separate things. As if he cannot be good and sovereign at the same time. And and the more I've walked um, with God and the more I've just encountered life, I've I've come to the, the personal conviction, I guess you say, that Believing in God's sovereignty is one of the most foundational beliefs that you have to have in order to love God properly. To love God as you ought. Because if you don't believe in God's sovereignty, then you're going to question everything. And by questioning everything, you are sitting, I am sitting in the seat of the judge. We are with Job's friends and his nagging wife wondering and questioning, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Typically, it leads to, woe is me, right? But in order to properly love God, in order to love God as we ought, it, be- it begins with the belief, a right belief about God, who Jesus is. Why did Jesus come? What was accomplished by his coming? In our men's group a few weeks ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, but we were talking just about the, um, 
we, we, I, I don't even remember what scripture we were studying. I think it was when we were looking at King Solomon. But we were talking about, is Christ alone enough to satisfy all of your desires? This is why it matters what we believe. I can believe that, right? I can believe that without fully being able to quantify its effects. I can believe that, and believing that can bring me to a place where I see the truth of it. But if I don't believe it, then I'll never come to see the truth of it. And isn't that what it is to believe in Christ? I mean, yes, we feel the effects of it. We feel, uh, we feel the peace uh, that surpasses all understanding, right? We feel his presence at times. But our hope isn't left for today. Our hope is in his return, where we will physically, bodily see him. Where we will physically, fully experience his rule and his reign. And this is why it is so important, guys, that we are in Scripture and that we read books that are credible on what they are teaching. And we only listen to uh, podcasts and things of people who are credible. Because to love God as we ought, we have to have a right belief about Him. The second thing that John says here, uh, and this is one of his most common themes throughout the book, is that to love God as we ought, we have to have a love for others. I think we have read this in every chapter of this letter. That John has again and again and again said, love one another. Love your brothers and sisters. He says it this morning in verses 1 and verse 2. He says, for, let's read all of one. For everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. We don't get to choose which one of God's kids we love. That's not for us. We don't get to choose to love God and not one another. Because it's as plain as black and white right there. To love one another is to love God. If you are not loving one another, you are not loving God. Parents, we know this, right? You got kids, they don't love each other. It doesn't make you happy. Right? But when they're caring for one another, when they're looking out for one another, when they're happy to see one another, when they're excited to share with one another... You're blessed. And that is a tangible experience we have that that communicates to us the way that God sees us as his kids. And this is what John is saying. To love the Father is to love one another. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.14 wrote, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen. To love one another... There's many, many implications in this, right? But there's two that I want to quickly hit on. The first implication of loving one another is this. And you have to hear every word I say, not just a few of them. But the first one is this. It's confronting with gentleness and grace for the hope of restoration. 
You see, we can't leave out the gentleness and grace, and we can't leave out for the hope of, res, of res, um, restoration. We are to confront one another when we sin. We are to confront one another when we are not loving. We are to confront one another when we don't have a right belief about God. But the aim of our confronting is not to show that we are better, is not to cast out from one another's presence, but is for the hope of restoration. How much smoother would our marriages be if when we confronted one another when we were wrong, if the hope was restoration and not just to be better than one another? So the first implication is confronting with gentleness and grace for the hope of restoration. Confronting sin with gentleness and grace for the hope of restoration. In Ephesians 5, I'm going to read um, first, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 of Ephesians for you. And I want you to key on, on, on a few things here. He says, Therefore be imit- imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, these are the things that we're to confront in one another. And notice that he talks about these sinful um, behaviors or these, these sinful um, indulgences, if you will, in light of walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, when we confront one another, there is a very real sacrifice that we are having to um, give ourselves up for. It's the sacrifice of rejection, right? It's the sacrifice of being belittled by you and you going around and, 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 and um, slandering me or, or whoever it is that's confronting you. But Paul says, as Christ loved you, as Christ gave himself up for you, as Christ counted his reputation of nothing for you, so you should do for one another. We're to confront sexual immorality and impurity. We're to confront covetousness, covet covetousness, sorry. Listen, we're to confront filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking because they're not to be among God's people. Now, the second implication is this. It's not only confronting others, but it's also going in humility and peace when you know that you have offended someone with the goal of reconciliation. Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. It is not wait until they come to you. If you know that you have offended somebody, then love for them demands... And I would also say, because as we see in 1 John, love for God demands that you leave your gift at the altar and you go and you try and make things right. It's not waiting for them to have the courage to bring it up. It's humility of saying, you know what, I was wrong. 
even if you hear it through a third party. Hey, I heard that when I said this, it offended you. Or when I did this, it made you feel this way. I'm sorry. You see, love for one another and love for God does not have a just-get-over-it attitude. It does not have a you're-just-too-sensitive attitude. It genuinely takes into account the feelings and the concerns of others so that we could love them the way that God has loved us. Now, the third thing he says here in this chapter that we ought to love God is with glad obedience. It just keeps getting easier and easier, and easier right? A right belief, love for one another, and now we've got to be happy about obeying. But this is what John is saying is love for God. Verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And he follows it up with this, and he says, And His commandments are not burdensome. You see, when God says, do this, right? When His Word says, flee from immorality, when His, flee, when his Word says, love one another, we shouldn't respond to that by saying, oh, that's so hard, I don't want to do that. Right? We, we, we shouldn't respond by stomping down the hallway to go do what Dad asked me to do. Again, parents, we know exactly what this is like. Any of you that have been around parents have witnessed this very thing of what this is like. When somebody is asked to go do something and they are going to go and do it, yes, but they are not happy about it. They are not glad about it. It is not their joy to be obedient, right? But we are not just to have a right belief and love one another begrudgingly. We're to be glad about it. God's commands are not burdensome. Loving your neighbor as yourself, when done through the power of the Holy Spirit, is not burdensome. When done with reliance on God's Spirit to give you the words to say and to do the hard work of converting the hard heart, it's not burdensome. We should gladly obey His call to love one another, to proclaim His gospel to flee from youthful lusts. Nothing says love like joyful cooperation and harmony. There are often times in our home when we're sitting around and the kids are getting along and they are caring for one another that I will stop what's going on and I'll say, now listen, isn't it so much better right now for everybody when we're acting this way? Isn't it better for you? It's better for me. It's pleasing to God. And it's amazing. Like, they all get it. They all get it. It's quick. Like, yeah, this is so much better. Yes. This is pleasing to God. This is living in cooperation and harmony with His design for us. Many of you have probably heard the story. I say it somewhat often, but there's a story of, you know, little kids jumping up and down on his bed, up and down on his bed. And mom comes in the room and says, don't jump on your bed. She leaves the room. He starts jumping up on the bed again. She comes back, right? Don't jump on the bed. She leaves the room. She's jumping on the bed again. She comes back. So that's it. This time you're going to sit on your bed and you're not going to move. So he sits there, crosses his arms, 
right? Gets a smug look on his face, goes, in my heart, I'm still jumping. That is not glad obedience. That's conformity. It's not obedience. God doesn't call for conformity. He calls for obedience. So this morning, let me bring you back to the opening story of the young soldier who is going to be put to death for his crimes and how his fiance, for her great love for him, clung to that bell to keep it from ringing, for she knew if it didn't ring, he wouldn't be put to death. You see, clinging to that bell did not make her love him, but it showed the world that she loved him. And the same is true for us this morning, as it is every morning. Right belief, love for others, and glad obedience do not make us love God. They simply display to the world that we love him. James chapter 2, the half-brother of Jesus writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Works does not produce faith, but faith produces works. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. You see, it is the call of the church to love God, to teach rightly about Him so that we would believe in a way, in a way that accords with loving Him. It is the call of the church to stir one another up towards love of God and love of one another and to go out and to do good. You see, if we believe rightly about God, we should not be afraid of doing good because our belief will not be polluted by good works, but our good works will be fueled by a right belief about who God is, what God has done, what that makes us, who that makes us, and then how we are to live. And so this morning, my hope for all of us is that we may repent for choosing how we ought to love God, for choosing how God should receive love from us, and that we would walk in accordance with how we truly ought to love Him. If you guys would stand with me, we'll pray. (coughs) Excuse me. God, as we um, move into songs, Lord, again, um, songs, God, that declare your goodness, songs that declare your love, songs that declare your sovereignty and your, Lord, your, your greatness above all. I pray, God, that our hearts would be moved to repentance. I pray, God, that our hearts, Lord, areas, God, where we don't rightly believe, Lord, that you would bring those to the forefront of our thoughts and our minds and our heart, God. I pray, God, for ways where we don't truly love one another. Lord, I pray, God, that those, those ways and those words, Lord, would be brought to the forefront of our hearts and our minds.
and God, the ways that we don't gladly obey. God, that those ways would be brought to the forefront of our hearts and our minds. I pray, God, that you would give us the strength, Lord, to confess those wrongs, those errors. I pray, God, even if there are people in our lives, God, that we need to go to today and confess and repent, God, that you would give us the strength, that we would not depend on ourselves in those moments, God, that we would depend on your spirit, God, and that we would live lives that declare that we love you. God, that the world would see a difference. Pray, God, that we would live lives that, that, that do, are about doing good. God, because we know that the greatest good has been given to us without us doing anything. God, give us the strength to repent from the error of our ways, God, and to cling, God, to you and your ways. May we be a family, God, as Crosspoint. God, may we be a family, Lord, that lives in harmony, in cooperation, God, with your heart and your ways.